I think those are all the notices that I need to give unless anyone else is thinking that there's anything. So uh, Carly is going to read to us from Matthew chapter 21. It is Palm Sunday this Sunday. It is the, the Sunday when we remember Jesus entering Jerusalem on that donkey. And uh, Matthew 21 records that. Starting in the first part. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was, what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread, through, spread their cloaks on the ground, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds then went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Keep going, Rose, is that it? Is this 11? Verse 11, yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. because we're not going to focus on that for this, uh, that, that passage. We're going to look at Zechariah chapter 9, which gets quoted in that. So turn with me to Zechariah 9. You've heard the story of Jesus and how Matthew, and, and actually um, uh, gospel writers in general, see that the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem as a fulfillment of that prophecy. Zechariah 9 um, I can't do page numbers because I'm on electronic media. Sorry about that. Um, says from verse 9, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away, says God, the, the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope, even now. I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. Let's pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Jesus, for the events of his life, which for um, uh, this church have been so shaping for individual after individual as we've come to know Jesus and to see him and discover all that he offers us. Thank you as well, Lord, that uh, your word predicted him long before. And indeed, uh, 
As the prophets of old looked forward to Jesus, they gave content and meaning and depth to those events that are recorded in the New Testament. Help us, Lord, in this passage to see what Zechariah saw. Help us to be uh, those who have the eyes of our hearts opened. And as we respond, Lord, as we uh, receive these truths, please shape us, change us, send, out, send us out of here, every single one of us, a different person from the person who entered. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. At the prayer meeting on Thursday, where we um, um, thank you for all those who made the effort to, to put in your vote or your proxy vote. We managed to vote uh, Fiona Hamilton in with uh, um, by getting 90% of the church membership uh, together. Thank you very much. And we were reflecting at the, at the prayer meeting on how vulnerable people feel. Uh, it is not difficult to see the reasons why people feel vulnerable at this moment. I was just thinking back through the last few Easter's. 2019, I had a, had a little look back. 2019, uh, Brexit was at its uh, turmoil, was at its height. Theresa May was going to get an extension. They were refusing it. Then they were accepting it, etc., etc. It was a moment of turmoil for, for Britain and Europe. And then 2020? lockdown and we just didn't know how long it would be how many people would die whether in fact it would touch us and our families 2021 lockdown and we just didn't know how long it would last and uh, whether we uh, we could endure 2022 war in europe which is a shock to europeans uh, at least uh, I remember when uh, the Balkans um, erupted into war and people people were saying then we thought there could never be another war in Europe after the Second World War. Um, but at least that one wasn't too big and it was localised and now we have another. So it's not surprising people feel feel the turbulence, feel the, the, the vulnerable, feel the, the, the insecurity of life. And we're going to be reflecting on that both this afternoon and indeed in two weeks' time. Again, we'll come back from a different perspective and just, just try and think what the Bible has to say to us in a moment like this. But uh, today, I want to look at this passage in Zechariah. And first of all, to point out to you, turbulence is a pretty familiar thing in the Bible. Turbulence and difficulty and insecurity and vulnerability was absolutely the air that Zechariah breathed. He lived under occupation, under Darius ruling in Babylon. Remember those horses in chapter one, James has been taking us through Zechariah, those mysterious horses patrolling throughout the whole earth, which are, of course, um, uh, as James explained to us, a, a sort of imagery taken from the Babylonian Empire, which controlled the world, its world through such uh, messengers. Zechariah himself, the Bible says, probably it is the, this Zechariah who Jesus mentions indeed, was murdered by his own people in the end. Pretty uh, difficult times. I actually have various relatives who lived under occupation because a number of my relatives 
from the Channel Islands and uh, the German, uh, the Nazi Germany invaded the Channel Islands and uh, there were uh, numbers of my family caught there under occupation. Just this week, um, I found a little document, uh, a document sent to uh, a relatively distant relative of mine who was living in Wales, uh, and it said, Dear Mrs. X, your mother died. It's in the letters from Germany, Germany from Jersey via Germany. Your mother died on the 5th of the month instant and was buried at St. Saviour Cemetery. Your brother was taken into the asylum. Sincerest sympathies. End of. There's threat, there's frustration, there's fear, there's anger that goes on. When you are living under forces that you feel impotent against, and they control you. We've already noticed that Zechariah's prophecy was quoted as Jesus entered Jerusalem. And Jesus entered Jerusalem in very, very similar circumstances. This time the occupation and the control was the forces of Rome. Crowds came out to chant and to sing and to praise Jesus as he uh, uh, rode on that famous donkey into, into Jerusalem. Uh, Judy and I have actually walked the streets of Jerusalem um, uh, after Friday prayers when all the Muslims uh, flock out of the Temple Mount where they've been uh, praying and they, uh, they flood down the little streets of the souk in Jerusalem. And the streets are lined with armed Israeli soldiers. And we walked with those Muslims, knowing that actually on many, many uh, Fridays, particularly after Friday's prayers, a Muslim will suddenly take out a knife and stab or try to stab a soldier. And those Israeli soldiers knew that as well their big automatic rifles. We felt the tension of that moment as we walked down the street. Very similar to the tension that there would have been as Jesus entered Jerusalem. Crowds shouting subliminally subversive messages. Hosanna to the King! Well, isn't Caesar King? And the Romans looking on. So both Zechariah and Jesus, they knew all about that sense of powerlessness, that sense of vulnerability. I want us to, I want us to feel that, to engage that with that, to know that any feelings that we have along those lines right now, they are in common with those two situations. And what does Zechariah see? as he lives under occupation. First of all, there is a king who is going to come. He says, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. In this situation, this frustrating situation that Zechariah lives in, he sees that there will be a king. 
a king that will overwhelm um, uh, Zion. That's the hill on which Jerusalem and the temple sit. Overwhelm them with joy. Fill their hearts so much that the, the whole of Jerusalem shouts because the king comes. Actually, in the verses before that in Zechariah 9, the whole description has been of God coming. So when we read, see your king comes, we are left slightly uncertain whether it is some human king or God the king. If you know your Old Testament, that comes up again and again. This ambiguity, this, this, this uncertainty. Is this going to be a human king? Is this going to be God the king who turns up? So that those who've read that carefully will find no surprise when Jesus arrives as God in the flesh, the God king. This God who arrives in Jerusalem, this king who arrives in Jerusalem will rout his em enemies and he will come to Jerusalem, to, to Zion. He will come to his temple, the religious center of God's people. He will come to the city, the political center of God's people and fill them with joy and delight. Now, don't you want that? As, as we engage with our vulnerability in this world of war and disease and uncertainty, don't, don't we want that? Don't we want someone to come in and to sort it out? That is one of the reasons why so often um, in the, such situations, uh, whole nations will vote for someone who is a little bit tyr tyrannical because they are longing for someone who has enough power and authority to sort out their sense of vulnerability. And he does, says, uh, uh, says Zechariah, come to sort it out. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious. The word righteous is a, is a rich word. It does mean just, that he that he stands for justice. But he also means um, a reliable in, in, in the sense of that, that, that he, what he says he does, what he promises he fulfills. He's not just and impotent. He is just and very potent. And he will, his righteousness will achieve the good that he promises. And he is victorious, says Zechariah, literally having salvation in the old translations. But the NIVs captured what it means. It means this righteous king will be victorious. He is going to do it. He is going to sort out evil in this world. He is going to set his people free. He is going to deal with all of those things that we know and sense and feel are wrong in this world. 
And Zechariah and the people who first heard that longed for that because they knew that feeling of frustration and vulnerability. The people who meditated on Zechariah's promise as they watched Jesus entering Jerusalem longed for that because they knew the sense of frustration. And any human being who has lived and honestly looked at this world and honestly even looked at their own heart and their own circumstances longs for that. Or your heart will be dead. And frankly, at times, we don't care who achieves that and how it's achieved. Now, I've, I've, I've found myself this week, I don't know whether anyone else um, has uh, been doing this, I found myself watching videos of plucky Ukrainian tanks destroying Russian tanks because you feel so deeply the injustice although there are people who die found myself just a little bit thinking good on you Will Smith for defending your wife's honour Though it was a terrible thing to slap a man in such a public way. Now we long for it so much that uh, sometimes we don't really care how it's achieved. But God does. God's going to do it in the most extraordinary way imaginable. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. Lowly. Riding on a donkey. On a colt of foal. Lowly, says the NIV. It's often translated um, in other translations, humble. The, the root word indicates that external circumstance imposed on this person by force has forced them to poverty or wretchedness or affliction or lack of status. Uh, here's is one dictionary definition, to have been humbled, afflicted by necessity or circumstances, stressing the difficulty of the of the condition and implying some kind of disability present. They're terribly technical, these things, aren't they? In other words, he's not coming holding the shoulder-launched anti-tank weapon. He's standing on the platform of Skramatorsk. And caring for the injured and the 
riding a donkey. Kings of Israel had to ride donkeys. They were required to. But they, so there's a certain honor in riding that donkey into Jerusalem, the king coming, riding a donkey. But it, they had to ride donkeys precisely because they had to identify with the humble. They could not ride. They were not allowed to ride their big white war horses or ride in a, ride, ride in a wonderful chariot. They had to ride some ordinary means of transport and there was no more normal or ordinary than a donkey. It was the, the VW Polo or the Ford Fiesta of the, or maybe an eco-friendly world. It was the Nissan Leaf of the, of the, of the ancient world. Here he comes, just like an ordinary person, just like one of the people who have, by life's circumstances, had, had bad things imposed upon them so that they have found themselves poor, so that they have found themselves wretched. It was almost a term, a technical term, for the dispossessed in the land of Israel. Here he comes. But this king, make no mistake about it, will win his victory. Quite extraordinary, you see, to, to, to then picture Jesus and to, to see how on that Sunday before Easter Sunday, that beginning of what came to be known as Holy Week, he anticipated exactly what would happen over the next seven days. Here is the man, Jesus, who will find himself self, uh, born witness against, arrested, deserted, humbled, beaten till he and hardly carry himself, let alone the cross they gave him. Dragged outside the city. Nailed to a cross. Ridiculed by people from every tribe and every nation and every stratum of society from rulers to the poorest people. slowly having the life sucked out of him. Humble. To the nth degree. But that, of course, was his victory. Because that was the moment when he, as God the Son, could take upon himself all of the evil and wickedness of this world 
of our hearts and pay the penalty as he died on the cross. See, your king comes, but to win his real victory, he's going to have to be that kind of king. And then the victory will spread out through proclamation. Listen to this, verse 10, the next verse. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, the war horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be broken. I'll take away all those instruments of oppression, the, the chariots, the war horses, the battle bows. They will be gone. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea. From the river, the Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. He will rule. He will bring peace. And he will do it by proclaiming that peace to the nations. That is the promise. And that is the mandate that continues to his people. Do you remember, uh, it wasn't in the Matthew reading, it was in the, uh, it's in the Luke's version of Jesus's entry. The, the Pharisees in the crowd say to Jesus, uh, talking about the, um, the children especially, and the disciples all shouting, Hosanna. Re teacher, rebuke them, they say. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Or remember Acts chapter 4, when Peter and uh, John have been arrested and they are told by the authorities to uh, not preach or speak or teach in the name of Jesus they replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. You see, that peace, that rule that Jesus promised since he died and then rose again has come through proclamation by his people. So that millions upon millions of people have found the peace that we only find through accepting Christ as the one who paid for our sins and reconciled us to God. And the one who promised us eternal life. Millions upon millions of people have discovered the true freedom of submitting to his rule and accepting that he does, he knows better than we do. He will rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. He will keep his promises through a covenant of blood as well. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. The, the, uh, the, my, the, the blood of my covenant with you echoes something way back in the book of Exodus, chapter 24, where the covenant, God's relationship, his promises to his people are confirmed by the sacrifice 
and then the sprinkling of the blood on the people. It is described as the blood of the covenant. And here's that phrase again. It implies that there is going to need to be a sacrificial death, a substitutionary death. In the Old Testament, of course, it was animals. But at the Last Supper, when Jesus gathered his disciples, the night before, the night that he was betrayed, he said, this is my blood of the covenant. And those who heard it knew it's not going to be an animal sacrifice tomorrow. It's going to be him. Freeing disciples from the waterless pit. It is um, a, an image, of course, there are, there are cisterns where people store water all over uh, the uh, uh, Palestine. And uh, often they are empty of water and then they became very, very useful places for throwing someone while you decided what he did, what you did with him. Happened to Joseph, for instance. It is a sort of captivity and you don't know what the future holds. No, says Zechariah, you're freed from that. Life may feel like that is all it is. I'm held captive and I've got no idea what my future holds. But if you trust in this Jesus, if you trust in his sacrificial death for your sins, you're set free. He keeps his promises by the blood of that covenant. And he makes his people prisoners of hope. It's an extraordinary phrase in verse 12. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. It says, prisoners, yes, because there's still frustration. There's still vulnerability. We still have pandemics. We still have wars that may impinge on us. We still have family difficulties and friendship difficulties that we find frustrating and difficult. We still have our own internal struggles. There is still a degree in our, in our fallen state of captivity and oppression that we feel. But now it is broken by hope. We are prisoners of hope. Return to your fortress, says Zechariah. The fortress, of course, for uh, an average Israelite was the, the walled city of Jerusalem. But many, many commentators have pointed out the fortress for Christians is Jesus himself. He is our safe place. Listen to the great preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, who preached a sermon in 1877 on this verse and said, Do you doubt whether you're saved? 
then run to Christ at once and so destroy the doubt. Do you mourn your slackness in prayer? And does the devil tell you that you cannot be a Christian or you, uh, you would not feel as you do? Run to Christ directly. Has there been during this day some slip in language or has there been some sin in overt action? Then run to Christ directly. Turn to the stronghold. Does darkness veil your, uh, your Lord's face from you? Do you see no bright promise gleaming out of the gloom? Does God himself seem as if he had ceased to be gracious unto you and to have shut up the bowels of his compassion towards you? Then just go to Jesus directly. Turn to your stronghold, he says. Now, I actually think that feeling and experiencing a bit of the vulnerability of life in this world is an important, healthy thing. Because did we feel to totally secure, we would trust in ourselves, we would uh, commit ourselves to our career, we would confidently expect to get wealthier and wealthier, we would look forward to our, our life partner and our 2.4 children and our wonderful retirement and we would just fritter our whole life away. Because no person has a fortress so strong as to protect us from death. When it comes to death, said the ancient philosopher, we live in a city without walls. But if we feel those things, we feel the frustration of this world. And we are opened up to meeting the king who can do something about it. Because he humbled himself even to death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. And all those who follow him will find the freedom that comes from knowing their sins forgiven, they are reconciled to God and nothing can separate us from the love of God, not even death itself. There is no better way to live than as prisoners of hope. I pray for every single one of us here, Lord. That you would meet us. That we would see the glory of Jesus in such a way 
that we cannot help but rejoice, even to shout in the depths of our hearts with delight. Because our King has come. Pray especially for those who are facing trouble and difficulty and feeling particularly vulnerable. Lord, help all those find their security in Jesus. Pray for those who have only the most tentative grasp on who Jesus is. That you would draw us to yourself inexorably. And for each one of us, Lord, pray that you would help us to live in the freedom that only Christ can provide through his blood of the covenant so that we can live as, yes, still as prisoners in one sense, but prisoners of hope. We ask it in his precious name. Amen.